0: And now your host, entrepreneur, real estate investor, and apartment deal syndicator, Jacob Ayers.
1: Hi, and welcome to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, episode 224. Hi, I'm your host, Jacob Ayers. Thanks so much for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm so glad you're here. Well, I'm excited to share with you our guest this week, Bob Fraser. Bob is on a mission to help investors take advantage of one of the most effective and overlooked avenues of real estate investing, which are residential mortgage notes. As a founder and principal of Aspen Funds, Bob has purchased more than a thousand mortgage notes earning double digit returns without the risk and volatility of traditional investing options. Bob calls this being a lean lord. So today we're going to compare and contrast the differences of being a landlord and being a lean lord. So I'm excited to have Bob on the show. Let's go ahead and jump into it. All right. Well, Bob, hey, thanks so much for joining us.
2: Fun to be here with you, Jacob.
1: Yeah, well, it's, hey, it's our pleasure. Hey, Bob, for the audience members that don't know too much about you, could you kind of tell us a little bit more about yourself, your background, how you got started in this kind of niche world of investing and just share your journey with us? Yeah, sure. Well,
2: it's kind of a long journey and I've got the scars to prove it. So I actually uh, was a computer scientist uh, from Berkeley, became a tech entrepreneur in the late 90s and uh, started a business in my attic with my sister-in-law. Ended up raising $44 million in venture capital and became this 300-person company and it totally blew up. It's such a fun ride. I learned a ton of what it meant to lead. I mean, I went from a computer programmer to a CEO. That's not an easy transition, okay? Uh, But I had a ton, mostly from the people who work for me. Well, then the whole thing blows up in the tech record. So it was. I was worth hundreds of millions of dollars and then worth Zip. So that was a heck of an experience and a learning curve and um, then really became a CFO for a number of companies. And then in 2012, started this real estate business with my partner and uh, haven't looked back since.
1: Yeah. Now, tell us how you made that transition from the technology space to real estate. Why? What made you make that switch?
2: And I also, in between there, I also ran a hedge fund uh, doing, <laughs>
1: doing <construction laughs> Not to mention. stock market. I had a, huge, a really good track record. I,
2: I'm actually a, a student of economics and study economics. I don't know why. It's just a passion and uh, pretty good at making the forecast of what's coming. And so I had a real good track record in the stock market. So I started a hedge fund in September of 2008. And all of a sudden, everything that I I figured out didn't work. And so here I had two massive crashes, one in the tech rack and the second in the 2008 stock fiasco. And so real estate, I was looking for something that just didn't have the same level of brain damage. And uh, if you buy, you know, some real estate investing, of course, is brain damage. But if you do it right, you can actually have a lot more control. I mean, controlling a stock market price of a share in the stock market is it's just ridiculous how volatile that is and how crazy that is and how faddish it is. And so real estate is just a lot more interesting and a lot more predictable. So that was kind of my transition. I was super pumped about it. Actually, my partner sat me down and said, Bob, I want to tell you about this new investment opportunity. And and it was in defaulted second mortgages. And I'm like, get away from me. I don't want to hear about defaulted second mortgages. He said, give me five minutes. So I said, all right. And I about fell out of my chair when he showed me the models. And so he's kind of the real estate genius behind our business. And I've just added the, the structure, the finance side, this kind of thing. So we're a great team. But when he showed me the stuff, I thought, this is so different than tech type investing, so different than stock market investing. It's so much more predictable, so much less risky, so much more upside, be honest.
1: Yeah, well, tell us a little bit more about that side of real estate investing, and that is investing in defaulted mortgage notes and being the bank in the whole grand scheme of things. Tell us what that's like, what it kind of means, high level. How does one get involved in that?
2: I actually was a landlord for a while, and I wasn't a very good landlord. I did probably everything wrong, and I lost money on it, and it was a nightmare. So today, I'm a lean lord. So I'm the bank, and there's a reason that banks have big buildings and with their names on them, they don't lose. And so we figured this out. We become the bank. So we buy liens on residential real estate. What we do is we buy liens that are have some challenges on them, and we get very high yields for doing that. For example, we buy a lot of loan modifications. So this is where, say, you own your home, but you, maybe you lose your job. You have trouble paying for a while. You work with your bank. They modify the loan. It's called a loan mod. And then you start paying again and it could be a great piece of real estate. You could be have a great job. You could be paying faithfully. But now this paper, this note, this loan is considered toxic. So the banks can't really hold a lot of this stuff. Okay, They get penalized. And a lot of hedge funds that are buy defaulted paper and they do loan modifications, they can't hold it for tax reasons. So bottom line is this paper comes available, but you can buy it at a significant discount. I mean, here, let me just give you a real example. It's a real note we own. It's about 100 house in upstate New York. The guy owes about $110,000 on this house, on his mortgage. He's paying, I think it's a 7% interest rate. He's paying $566 a month. Well, we bought this $110,000 note for $50,000. So my yield is about 13.5% on this note. So I earned 13.5%. He owes me 110, but I only paid 50 for it. Hmm. So instead of getting a 7% yield, because I didn't pay 100, I paid 110, I paid 50, I'm getting about a 13.5% yield. So I'm earning 13.5% of my money. Now what happens if that guy doesn't pay? Well, I take possession of that house, I foreclose, I sell it at auction, I'm gonna get 70 for that, actually make money. I make, in fact, I make more money if he doesn't pay me than if he does pay me. And then here's the other kicker. Let's say this guy refinances. He goes to a bank, he refinances, and maybe he even says, hey, can you take a short payoff, a short refinance? Can you take a $90,000? I say, well, okay, I paid 50 for it. So I make a $40,000 profit. So there's this huge, it's income, it's a margin of safety, and in fact, our recovery rate, our default rate is meaning the number of loans that default are we're running around between five and 10%. But our recovery rate is over 100%. So we get a fair amount of defaults because we're the kind of notes we buy, but our recovery rates are, are actually profitable when people default.
1: Yeah. So it's I- a crazy business. It's interesting because a lot of people out there who are listening to the show right now are probably landlords themselves. And we all know the things that come with being a landlord, right? You know, the headaches sometimes. You're either managing the property yourself or you're managing a property manager. But either way, you're involved in some level of detail, right? You're managing that. Toilets, termites, tenants, all those good things. But with your aspect of investing, you were really a different style and a different path to you know, investing in this real asset class. Now, you mentioned something I want to ask about. And how does one go about finding a $110,000 mortgage note at such a discounted rate of, say, $50,000, $60,000? Who's selling that to you and why?
2: Yeah, okay. Well, that was a group of, you know, that was a long time ago. I'm trying to remember how we got that one.
1: But we buy lots
2: of these loan modifications from hedge funds, so here's what happens. If you look at like the FHA auctions, they auction billions of dollars in defaulted mortgages. So what happens is hedge funds, these big guys, buy these notes on defaulted mortgages. Some of the homes are vacant, some of them are not vacant. So what they do is they start calling the borrowers and a certain percentage of the borrowers actually say, hey, I can pay now, please help me, please don't kick me out. Can you work with me? And they actually write a new loan, a loan modification, right? Well, then the hedge fund's done. They've actually done their job. Now they've got an income stream, but they don't want an income stream. They want to go sell that and buy more notes. So what they do is they sell it. So we buy bulk from a lot of the big hedge funds out there. There's a number of websites available. We can provide that link in the show notes to your listeners, some different options out there for how to buy these things. And there's all different kinds of stuff. So that was loan modifications. Another kind of loan we buy, for instance, is seller finance notes. So there's one of the funds we just bought from, again, a hedge fund. Well, they bought all this property. And they've rehabbed all this property in the kind of tier two areas, not inner city, but not just outside the inner city. They're actually really good metrics. The housing boom is now heading into those areas right now and the prices are going up. But what they did, they bought these houses, they fixed them up, they put renters in them. And then for the renters who were faithful and qualified, they actually did seller financing. And so uh, an $80,000 house They'll put them in seller financing at a 9% or a 10% loan rate. And these are people who are really not in the financial system. And so we've bought a number of these notes from them. I'm at about a 20 or 25% discount, their first mortgages. And that stuff's available all over the place. You've got to shop for it. You've got to do your underwriting. But here's the other thing about it. I mean, we own thousands of notes. I've got my company, we have a little less than 20 employees. I own thousands and thousands of notes. It's just so much different and so much simpler than managing dorks when having done it. Like I said, I probably made every mistake you can make as a landlord. And I just have, you even talk about it, I just get sick to my stomach.
1: Well, yeah, Bob, that's really interesting. Now, one thing I want to do is kind of compare and contrast being a landlord, as we all are familiar with, versus being a lien lord is this term you've kind of coined, at least new to me. So at a high level, just kind of compare or contrast some of the high level differences of the two.
2: Okay, one, we don't own the property, we own a lien on the property. So if that property appreciates, we don't necessarily get any of that appreciation. That's the one downside. But we do buy at a discount. That's the other interesting thing. We buy this stuff at a discount, anywhere from 20 to 70% discounts against the paper. Well, what the discount does, it gives us a cushion against something bad happening, prices falling or borrow or not paying or anything like this, but it also gives us an upside. So I can double my money in a refinance. I have probably an eighth of our notes refinance every year. One eighth.
1: Now explain what that means exactly when a note refinances.
2: You go own a house, you go refinance your mortgage. You go get a better rate. Sure, yeah. So when you refinance, if I'm the bank, I get paid off. It's like selling.
1: Okay, got it. It's like
2: selling the house. I get paid off. Now, if you owe me $100,000 and I paid 50 and you refinance, I just made a $50,000 profit. So my $50,000 cost, I now got $100,000 in the bank to go buy another note. That happens. An eighth of my portfolio does that without me doing anything. It self-liquidates every year. And so one of the fun things we've done, so we run a fund that does this. And here's one of the biggest problems with real estate. The other thing, compare and contrast, is you're locked up in real estate. You do a lot of these big commercial projects or multifamily projects. You're in those for 5 10 years. What happens, my portfolio liquidates an eighth of it every year. So what happens, we actually run an investor redemption program. So if you want your money back, you just give me a quarter's notice and there's no guarantees, but we can generally give people their money back because we have this huge amount of cash flow from people that are paying off their loans by refinancing or sell the house. The same thing, not just when they refinance, but they sell the house, the bank gets paid off, right? Yeah, sure. So that's what happens. They sell the house. I don't, I don't initiate it. I don't control it. I just get paid off.
1: Yeah. So, Bob, when you're talking about being a lien lord, how does the scalability compare to investing in real estate itself? If you're going to grow a portfolio of, say, rental properties, whether those be single family homes or multifamily, how does the scalability compare when you're investing in mortgages like this?
2: Yeah, great question. Being a lien lord is so, so, so scalable. The underwriting, the most work we do is underwriting. Once the note's underwritten, they typically just pay until they refinance or sell the home. And sometimes, 10% of the cases, we have to go after the property. But it's beyond that. It's simply passive. It's just very, very scalable. And so much of the work we do, we don't have maintenance. I don't even have to manage anything. I don't have to respond to a phone call. There's really very little I have to do because I'm just the bank. I mean, think about how many times you, if you're a homeowner, you've called your bank, your lender, for what? There's very, very little yeah. contact. So it's very scalable. I see you recommend, you know, multi family because of its scalability. And it is, you know, multifamily is a lot more scalable than single family. But being a lean lord is just as scalable as multifamily. You can build a very simple infrastructure and grow very, very rapidly and very large.
1: Yeah, sure. And I know you're coming from this from a technology perspective. So I'd like to kind of get your opinion there too. This seems to be one of those businesses you can kind of develop remotely, invest from anywhere, invest in those mortgages in the areas that really make sense, kind of like you would investing in single family or small multis or whatever it is. So talk about that aspect of it. Absolutely. And
2: probably more so because even in single family or multifamily, you really need boots on the ground. We don't. We buy notes. I actually run a virtual company. We got like said a little less than 20 20 folks work for us, then they actually work all over the United States. I use technology to wind us all together, but we underwrite notes in every state in America and buy notes everywhere because you know, we have to evaluate the real estate in every place, but we don't really have to be there to respond to repair needs or these kind of things. So it really lends itself to a very scalable and very uh, geographically diverse kind of environment. And yeah, we do everything, everything with technology. So we use Salesforce to manage all of our assets and contact with borrowers. We do acquisitions. Our acquisitions guy is actually in Texas. So yeah, it's all very virtual and very scalable.
1: Yeah, that's a really appealing part of this type of investing. Absolutely that able to be virtual and build this business from wherever you're at and invest where those numbers make sense and that kind of thing. So yeah, that's one advantage I can definitely see here. That's right. And allows us to
2: be diverse in pick the markets. Like right now, I think, you know, I think the coast, the markets are slowing in their growth and not necessarily super appealing from an investment point of view, but the Midwest is on fire and finding these lower balance type opportunities. So being able to go where the opportunity is uh, virtually is awesome, right?
1: Yeah. Well, with so much options out there, it kind of brings the question, like, how are you looking for these mortgages? What in particular are you looking for? Any kind of demographic, economic trends, any certain areas, any certain types of mortgages? Walk us through what that looks like.
2: Yeah, well, we definitely, you know, my background in economics, we definitely look at, want to look at the macro picture. Having figured out a long time ago that when the tide comes in, all boats float right? <laughs> yeah. When the tide goes out, all boats get beached. And so I really want to know where the tides are going. So we've definitely shifted in the last couple of years, our, our strategy towards uh, the the emerging markets, up and coming markets. And like I said, we love the tier two areas. That's what we, we call them is not inner city, but it's outside the inner city. These are homes that are in the 70000 to $120,000 range. Now for California and New York investors are thinking, what is there? Yeah, those
1: a- don't exist there, huh? <laughs>
2: absolutely is and here's the other thing so we, we, we use very sophisticated underwriting models to underwrite these but so a home let's let's say you know an $80,000 home in Kansas City tier 2 area the PI payment if I'm lending to this guy he's paying a principal and interest payment let's say it's300 a month. To me, as his bank. But the equivalent rent on that place, if he were to not pay me and I take that house and he goes and rents somewhere else, he's going to be paying 900 Yeah, right. We look at PI payment versus rent, and we're seeing huge swaths of countryside, huge areas in America where the rents are far higher than the PI payment. And that's where, we, you know, that's one of the metrics we look for. So we're looking for places where the rents are far higher than the mortgage rates. And to me, by the way, that tells me the prices are going to. Go up, okay, in those houses. I mean, because there's, we haven't touched on the economics yet much here, but you know, the single family market has been massively underbuilt for the last 15 years, massively, and so there's a huge shortage in the single family uh, market, of housing shortage, and so prices and prices are far below replacement cost. So the current market prices of housing is far below replacement cost. Meaning that if you're at a, you know, these $100,000 house in Kansas City, if you were to, to build that today, it's going to cost you one hundred and fifty to 180000 Prices are going up. So we we love markets where the macro is for us. We love the markets where the rents are far higher. So a guy whose rent is going to be far higher if he quit paying us, is guess what he's going to do? He's going to pay us. And at some point, he's going to sell that house. And when he sells, I'm going to get a big cap gain. We definitely look, we're loving the lower balance markets right now, the tier two areas. We love second mortgages, which may surprise people. And I'm glad that surprises people. I'm glad people aren't buying those because it leaves them for me.
1: Yeah, explain exactly what a second mortgage is.
2: Well, second mortgage, so let's say you buy your house, you take out a mortgage, that's a first mortgage, and then you go to a home equity line
1: later, that's a
2: second mortgage. And the second mortgages are quite a bit riskier because they only get paid after the first mortgage gets paid 100%. So a lot of people shy away from them. But a second mortgage, if there's only a dollar in a senior mortgage, then a second mortgage is no different than a first. So it really is about, you know, to me, there's no bad note there's only a bad price that you can pay for that note. So we bid low dollars for these things. We get huge yields on these notes and we know how to manage defaults. It's actually a specialty of ours. If a guy doesn't pay, we know how to manage that. And like I said, our recovery rate is actually positive. So we're getting yields as high as 15, 18, 20% yields on second mortgages when we buy them. And that doesn't mean they're risky. It all depends on the borrower and on, on, on the senior mortgage and on the on the real estate. And you, so with seconds, you can actually, there's a whole scale. You can pick where you want to be in the yield curve. You can say, man, I want to go for 25% yields. Great. You can do that. Or you can say, I want to go for 10% yields or 7% yields and go uber, uber safe. It's really up to you to pick your portfolio mix and your sweet spot.
1: Yeah. Well, Bob, a lot of listeners out there might be thinking that being the bank sounds like it has a high barrier to entry, right? They don't have the means to go put their name on a fancy, tall, high-rise building like you alluded to earlier and be the bank. But what's a realistic path and how realistic is it for an average investor to take this investment route? It's definitely
2: realistic. I can get into this for a couple thousand bucks and buying a reperforming second mortgage and holding on to it and working it. And you can go up to any scale you want but there are several websites that offer there are note exchanges. you do need to know a little bit It'd be a good idea to talk to an attorney in your state that you're buying this just to make sure you're not uh, it's okay. I mean in California for instance it's totally fine in Georgia you need to be licensed to even own a note but Georgia's a rare a rare case. so you want to just make sure there's no laws but it's very very doable and uh, do a little research and buy some notes. These are, they're perfect IRA investments because they're so passive. They're definitely, it's definitely doable and very easy to get started. So typically what you do, you can buy a note and you hire a mortgage servicer. And there's a number of firms out there that actually generate the statements, the mortgage statements and the issue the 1098s and they do all that stuff and they charge you anywhere from $15 to $30 a month per loan.
1: This mortgage servicer sounds like the equivalent of a property manager in the rental real estate right, exactly
2: world. That's exactly right. They actually you can hire them to do the full servicing, they can take the phone calls if you want, or they can just issue the statements in the 1098s. And they'll they'll make sure sure the balances are correct and they have the bulk of the compliance requirements you obviously expect your mortgage company to be able to to accurately give you the balance and accurately calculate your interest rates and step up rates and variable and all that and they do all that so you don't have to worry about making sure it's all accurate and getting the statements they, they collect everything and then pay me as the bank there's a dozens of these companies i mean hundreds of these companies so finding them is the key and then bidding on notes making the transition making the basically uh buying the note and getting it in your portfolio. yeah, And it's very, very simple to do. There's a number of companies that'll help you walk you through that. So very, very doable.
1: And that creates this gatekeeper between say, me the property owner and you the mortgage owner i'm not mailing you bob a check to your home every month for my mortgage payment right i'm mailing it to my mortgage servicer you know who's the face of the mortgage and looks absolutely. like a much more professional operation i'm sure yeah absolutely right well bob what other things would you have to tell audience members who this might be a new topic too about mortgage notes anything that i should have asked you or maybe some kind of point you'd like to touch on here
2: I think it's actually a great way to get started. And I, you know, I just tell your listeners to start doing some research and find a decent attorney who understands this. And there's hundreds of them to help you walk you through it. Or there's also some websites that actually do some of the training about how to do this. And the most important thing is underwriting. It's actually running the scenarios with a rental. The only two scenarios you're concerned about is okay, what if the guy doesn't pay? What do I do? Well, you evict, find a new tenant. And then what if the real estate crashes? Or I guess the third is property maintenance. So with this, it's no different. You've got to look at the property. You've got to look at the borrower. And you've really come up with it. You've got to run your scenarios. Okay, what if he doesn't pay? What am I going to do? What is a foreclosure cost? Foreclosures cost from 1500 to $3,000. How am I going to handle that? and most attorneys will walk you through this it's not that complicated and these things are these things are traded all the time and foreclosed on all the time so there's a huge infrastructure out there of trained people who know how to manage all this stuff the thing is just doing your underwriting properly what if the price falls what if I just run these scenarios on paper
1: Yeah. So if this is a new thing to anybody listening out there, it's just like anything else. you got to spend some time educating yourself, building that team around you, investing in the infrastructure like you alluded to earlier is essentially what it boils down to, right? Yes, that's right. Awesome. Well, Bob, hey, as we're wrapping up here, it's been a really fun conversation, kind of learning about how you've built a mortgage note investing business and the ins and outs of that type of thing. I wouldn't necessarily go as far to say it's a different investment asset class, but it's a different way to invest in this same asset class. So That's right. Well, as we're wrapping up here, we've got a lightning round. It's just a series of questions we ask all of our guests. Are you ready for it? Sure. Okay. Well, the first question is, what was your biggest hurdle getting started investing in real estate? Let's call that mortgage note investing. And then How did you <laughs> yeah. overcome it?
2: Yeah. My biggest hurdle was I knew nothing about it. <laughs> so, and how I solved that was by partnering with a guy who really knew about it. That was the key for me and a perfect deal. I could do what I'm good at and he could
1: do what he's good at. Yeah, sure. Okay. Well, Bob, do you have a personal habit that contributes to your success?
2: We're followers of Jesus, and so we really just take a lot of time and consider deals that come. We don't feel like we need to chase any deal that happens. So we're very just we're very methodical and very deliberate, and very consider every aspect of every deal. And so we don't rush into anything. And so. We've not made a lot of mistakes because we really take our time and consider these things uh, prayerfully. And uh, that's been a huge, huge gain for us.
1: Yeah. Awesome. I love that. Well, Bob, do you have an online resource that you find valuable in your day to day?
2: I would say for note acquisitions and all this stuff, you know, we, we're very networked in uh, using LinkedIn and other, other things just with other investors. That's probably our, our main tool. We a few conversations with others and bigger pockets and others, but those would probably be my, my two biggest.
1: Yeah, sure. Well, Bob, what book would you recommend to the listeners and why?
2: My old standby is, I've made all my kids read it, is the uh, Rich Dad Poor Dad. This idea of just putting your money to work. So many people work so hard to earn their money, and they never think about making their money work. And so if people should spend just a little extra time thinking about how to make their money work for them, in addition to just working hard and developing their careers.
1: Awesome. Yeah, I I really like that. Such a great book recommendation. And uh, I think it's fun you made all of your kids read. I'm sure that set them up for a life of success. (laughs) Well, Bob, last question in the lightning round, if you were to give advice to your 20 year old self to get started investing in real estate, what would you go back and tell yourself?
2: I would definitely say, look at notes, look at liens. It's so much. I'm just personally not a handy person. And so, (laughs) you know, way, way better, you know, do a little more analysis. And had I understood that early on and being able to just build a portfolio of high yielding notes with upside, and uh, that would have been such a game changer for me had someone told me about that as a 20-year-old.
1: Yeah, awesome. Well, Bob, it's been a lot of fun kind of talking about these mortgage notes and all that comes with that. If it's a new subject to anybody out there and they want to learn more, kind of learn about what you're doing or connect with you, where is the best place to do that? Well, we'll actually
2: send your listeners. I encourage them to go to your show notes on your podcast and we'll have some information there. I've done this economic presentation. I do it only for my shareholders once a year. It really is a look at the housing market and the economy and we'll make that available to your listeners as well does give some, some websites and some resources for learning more about notes. So if they want to do a deeper dive in, just encourage them to visit your, your uh, the show notes for your podcast.
1: Awesome, great. Yeah, I think you're the first guest who's ever uh, driven people towards the show notes. You know, always a valuable uh, resource there. So yeah, we'll link all those good things into the show notes if our audience members have any questions or want to learn more, check out those resources. Really appreciate you providing those. Well, Bob, as we're wrapping up here, any last minute wisdom, piece of advice you'd like to leave with us?
2: Well, sure. My favorite life quote is from George S. Patton. He said, if I don't botch it up, he said, a good plan violently executed today is better than a perfect plan executed next
1: week. Awesome. I love that. Yeah. yeah.
2: So, and it's just, look, make a good plan and then freaking go for it. Tweak the plan as you go. So too many people are get, allow themselves to get stuck. So let's go conquer, man.
1: I love it. Awesome, Bob. Well, hey, with that, let's sign off. Thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a lot of fun having you on.
2: It's a pleasure, Jacob. Wish you the best and all your listeners as well.
1: Thank you so much, Bob. Take care. All right. Bye-bye. All right, that wraps up this week's episode with our guest, Bob Fraser. Well hey, if you're liking this podcast and these episodes, I've got a favor to ask of you. Would you please recommend this podcast to one of your friends, coworkers, family members, just anyone you think may get value from this podcast? That would mean so much to me. To learn more about anything we discussed in the episode today, you can find all of those resources, links to all of those things in the show notes. As always, for more information, resources and to connect with me, you can do so at www.jakobairs As always, engineer the lifestyle you want.
0: You've been listening to the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom podcast, providing you actionable content to build your real estate empire. Nothing on this show should be considered specific, personal, or professional advice. Please consult an appropriate tax, legal, real estate, financial, or business professional for personal advice. The opinions of guests are their own. Information is not guaranteed. All investment strategies have a potential for profit or loss. The host is operating on behalf of the Real Estate Way to Wealth and Freedom LLC exclusively.